The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, thank you for tuning in to Spirit Matters. Um, If you're uh, unaccustomed to this uh, new format of the show on uh, mindbodyspirit.fm and are used to seeing uh, a co-host, Dennis Ramundi, that was the show I did for six or seven years until the uh, beginning of of 2023. And um, you can access the app archive of 300 or so shows on the old Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com. Here, we're continuing the Spirit Matters tradition of speaking to knowledgeable spiritual teachers and other experts on related subjects, all uh, with the aim of helping you be better informed about matters of the spirit and um, have all the information you need to proceed on your own independent path. Today's guest is Eric Shaw, who is a scholar, a yoga instructor, uh, and uh, has a particular interest in yoga philosophy and yoga history. His early academic training was in the arts. Later, he earned uh, MAs from Union Theological Seminary in Religious Studies and uh, from California Institute of Integral Studies in Asian Studies. He's written over 100 articles on yoga tradition and authored two books, one of which was BKS Iyengar and the Making of Modern Yoga. The uh, most recent is Sacred Thread, a Comprehensive Yoga Timeline, 2000 Dates That Shaped Yoga History, which is mainly what we want to talk about today. Welcome, Eric. Good to be here, Phil. Let us begin with the elephant in the room that I told you I was going to ask you about, um, and I'll, I'll, in the interest of uh, um, full disclosure, I will say that uh, for listeners, I interviewed Eric for my previous podcast only to have our uh, board of advisors inform me that uh, Eric was had attracted some controversy, and um, so the show never aired. And my, and I told him I'd like to have him on this show, but I want to address that. He agreed, so we're going to talk about it. Eric, in, in 2017, you posted something on Facebook that you called uh, titled Masculinism 101, a response to the feminist recoding of history. I haven't read the full piece because it seems to have been taken down, but I was made aware at the time of a, some of the responses to the piece in the yoga community mainly, and uh, you were accused of misogyny, sexism, and other uh, flaws and um, attributes. So I'd love to hear 
your response to what happened and how that all came down. Yeah, I was accused of just about everything. <laughs> As happens when you anger a group of people. Um, so uh, a little bit of background. Uh, I spent a lot of my life in academia. I had a, a mother, something off my screen, I had a mother who was a pioneer in feminism. So I, uh, and you know, from the age of 12 onwards, I was a, a single, a child with a single mother. And so I got a lot of feminist theory, feminist ideology with my mother's milk, as it were. Um, and of course, the yoga world is, is politically charged and it's um it's largely populated by women and now often commonly led by women um so in those various careers and my careers in academia and my careers in the art world my careers in the museum world um i was largely in female dominated contexts and the recipient of a lot of the darkest, I think, parts of feminism, which accuses men's of of just about everything under the sun. <laughs> and um, I was getting some of that in my lectures. And at some point, I just felt like, okay, this is this is an, this is an intellectual program. This is a way of taking history and reshaping it along certain lines. And I'm a historian. I'm an intellectual. I can play this game too. I could take history and just turn it against women if I wanted to. And so that was a kind of a modest proposal type thing. It was a, it was a um, polarizing statement that I shaped and put out there and I didn't frame it at all. I just, maybe that's the, the puck in me, the kind of troublemaker in me that wanted to just put it out there and create some trouble. And I thought I'd just create some trouble. I'd have a little discussion and things would be over, but uh, it mushroomed and annihilated my career and allowed me to lose a lot of friends and um yeah within about a week everybody on the planet had fired me and uh it was very painful um that was six years ago um yeah i don't know what else you'd like to discuss but i'm open well as i said i haven't read the entire piece but i read uh pieces of it uh, sections of it that uh, some of your uh, antagonists uh, quoted. Um, and it it is pretty incendiary. And I can, I can understand why people freaked out and, and attacked you. Uh, you open with saying women have been cowards. They've sucked the wealth and lifeblood out of men to enjoy their baby-making efforts while Men went out and did the real work in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess the question is, and I have to say, when I first read some of this, I thought, oh, it's satire. He's making a point by exaggerating. So the question is, did you mean that? Or did you mean it for effect? And... Um, well, let's begin with that. Yeah. Well, we're quite off the topic of yoga here, but we can proceed. Yes. Um, but the, but in the, a sense, we're not because because you're the people who reacted to it were largely women in the yoga community. Yeah. And so it has relevance. Yeah. So, like like you, uh, Phil, I I was raised in a different time and place, and I was raised under the kind of prerogatives of modernism rather than postmodernism. And in that tradition, I was learned, I was taught something about truth with a capital T. And it's not the truth with a capital T that was created in the 1980s under the moral majority and attributed to Christianity. And it's not the absence of truth that is now discussed in the postmodern context where every possibility for truth is undermined and seen as purely tribal or self-interested. Um, I believe in truth. I believe that truth is broad. I believe that truth uh, includes many narratives that are counter to each other, but are, which are both true. And 
Yeah. And so, um, so everything I wrote in there is true. It's true from a given perspective, just like everything written from the feminist perspective with the same tone and the same ideological fervor and the same narrow um, filter for facts is true. You can take any subject and you can point out everything that's in the shadow, the psychological shadow of it. You can point out everything that is on the dark side of it, because everything in, in human life is binary. It's positive and negative. You can go to the negative. And so that was a thought experiment. I was interested to see how the public responded to the view from the masculine point of view that we never get. You can just as well criticize women as darkly and as punitively as you can men. And so I exercised that. I, I, it, was a, it was an intellectual experiment. Do you, and it's true. Yes, do you it, regret it? It, it is true from, from that perspective. Um, well, that, I guess, would be quite arguable, whether it's true. But I guess what you're saying is it, you, it can be seen that way. So the question is, um, do you think the critique of it, do you think uh, the, the accusations of misogyny and sexism were um, fair or accurate? Well, it depends how deep you want to go, Phil. I mean, um, I would say on the surface, no. But I would also say that, especially among heterosexual males and females, and especially among feminists, there is definitely antip antipathy between the sexes. If you want to push that to the level of misandry, the hate of men, or mis misogyny, the hate of women, you can push it to that level. And in public conversations, we're not really open to going into our deep psychological responses to the other sex. And this is probably not the forum in which that's safe to even explore. Um, but uh, on the surface, I'd say no, in terms of the way it's usually understood. So you would not uh, accept that you are misogynistic. What Do you have any regrets about that piece and what you wrote? That's a difficult question. I mean, um, Another thing that you should know about me is that I come from a, a tradition of people who stood up in public forums and actually paid the price for it. Uh, my father, my grandfather, my mother. And so I still believe that that's what make de makes democracy tick. Those of us who are willing to say things that other people don't want to hear uh, need to be said. So there's a certain self-sacrifice that is occurs in any such instance. Right. And that I do not regret. I, that I do not regret. Yeah. The, you, it, it's painful to, to lose my career. It was painful to lose something I loved. It was painful to see my friends whose views of me were so politicized. They could only see me through the political lens and, and broke our friendship. All of that, it was extremely painful. It's still extremely painful. Do you wish you'd written it differently or made your intentions more clear? I think as a kind of sociological experiment, it stands. Yeah. Um, today. Do you wish you had made it clear thing. that it was an experiment? I think there's a part of me that enjoys provoking people, Phil. Uh -huh. Well, that's honest. Okay. And uh, it, it did that in a way that uh, it was unimaginable. Last question on the subject, because yeah. you want to get on to the matter of spirit matters. Um, you said your, your mother uh, was an early feminist and you were raised in a feminist uh, home, essentially. Yeah. Did your mother read the piece? Uh, yeah. How did she reply, respond? My mother's always been like most mothers on this planet. She supported me in whatever I've done. So we never got into a deep discussion about it. It's, it's funny. My, my mother's a brilliant person. She's well-educated. But uh, yeah, we didn't get into a deep discussion about it. Okay. Uh, I will leave it to listeners to evaluate for themselves. And um, let's move on to uh, the subject of... Uh, that's relevant, more relevant, uh, well, 
as relevant at least to, to spirit matters. Um, and that is uh, your new book, uh, Sacred Thread, a Comprehensive Yoga Timeline, um, which I read before it was published. And um, I wanted to have you on to talk about yoga history and um, your uh, expertise in that subject. I'll leave it to listeners to explore the uh, controversy around you on their own and uh, leave it at that for now. So tell us um, how you came to this book, but even before you tell us that, tell, tell us, you told us something about your, your upbringing, uh, uh, but tell us about the spiritual aspect of your upbringing, the sort of origins of your own path and uh, we'll get to how you came to this book. Yeah. Um, so as I said, I was I think I was raised in a home where truth is important. My my parents were both ministers. They were um, Methodist ministers. And uh, this is the West Coast version of Methodism. So uh, they were ragingly liberal. I was raised in a home that was probably more political than religious. Um, discussions around the table, very much focused on current events and political perspectives on those events. So, um, and I think, as I said, kind of my intro to your, in response to your initial question, I felt like I was raised in a home where an understanding of the truth was broad and open. And so, and, and not very religious, even though my parents kept their religions to themselves. I and mean, we said prayers around the table, we went to church, but there wasn't a whole lot more than that. Um, and I, be, I was an early atheist when I was a young man, um, but uh, I had certain religious experiences and insights that changed that, and they came through Eastern traditions. So I, I began meditating when I was 24. Um, I read Shagim Trungpa, that changed my life. Um, I began, um, that is a regular practice. I started meditating night and day because I was a crazy young man, and I knew I was totally motivated by fear and that and that controlled that and made me sane I still I feel like that's true to this day I still meditate and I feel like I have a wild mind and if I didn't meditate it would probably consume me so um that became very passionate for me I've always been kind of a gestalt person I've always been kind of a person who loves routines of every sort so that meditation practice became regular I would retreats you know yoga retreats I was part of Zen Center in San Francisco um, I would do my own retreats where I would fast for a weekend and retreat and meditate all day I was quite a fanatic um, and then I pursued a religious studies master's degree in 1991 and focused that as much as I could on Eastern religion so it was in a Christian milieu and I learned everything about the Bible that I needed to learn um, and church history and whatnot um and then uh actually didn't start doing hatha yoga until um 19 or till the year 2000 and even then i and then i took on a whole hog i started practicing every day i started going to classes three times a week um i learned that there were significant teachers that was slow to dawn i learned that there was a history of this practice that went backwards in india of thousands of years that all that information was slowly dawning in my mind but by the next year, I was teaching yoga 2001 and pursuing every strong teacher that came to Portland, Oregon at the time. And then in 2004, I undertook doctoral studies in San Francisco on the tradition. I thought that was a novel thing to do in that year. And it actually was. Now it's much more common. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually began composing the material for this book shortly thereafter. And why the book? Why, what made you take on the task? Because, you know, I know from my own work how how much time goes into uh, the research for such a, a book. And, you know, you go back uh, hundreds of years, you know, you begin the book in 3300 BCE. So um, you did a, a, a ton of research Um that requires dedication and perseverance. Uh, so you, it must have been a, a, a dominant uh, preoccupation for you. Uh, but what was what was your rationale for doing the book? Why did you think it would be of value to readers? Yeah. 
Well, you know, Phil, I, I think there, there's two sides to the writing of every book, right? I mean, there's there's the conviction that it will serve others, but there's also the existential need to shape this material for your own mind and maybe for your own solace, for your own soul. Quite so right. <laughs> this is an outpicturing of my mental you know, behavior. This is how my mind structures reality. I, I'm, you know, deeply invested in the humanities. I see cultural conversations in almost every physical object I see in every person I meet. I can see the cross currents of influence that are touching that object or person or, or, or community. So because I think in terms of timelines, I actually started composing this timeline. I think it was in 2005 or maybe even in 2004 when I entered that doctoral program and the I just kept adding to it because I needed to have a physical kind of reflection of where to put all the facts that I was collecting in that in that academic program into one place and this is the kind of place that I put those things in in my mind so at some point I realized um if this was either a dissertation um and I had quit my doctoral program by that time and taken an MA and had considered uh, returning to that process and knowing, and I knew that in Commonwealth universities in Australia, Britain, uh, Canada, that you can just submit a dissertation and get the PhD. I thought about shaping this material into a dissertation for that purpose, but that wasn't happening. I thought, Eric, just, just publish the thing, just get it together, finish the research, publish it. And I thought that would be an easy process because by that time I had quite a few pages, but it, I probably ended up at least tripling the size of the manuscript by filling out spots that were not well informed. And I should, I should have done this earlier, but I should thank you deeply for taking <laughs> a look at the form of the manuscript and giving me voluminous feedback. You gave me better feedback than anybody I submitted it to. I submitted it to many scholars and writers and you were, you went through it piece by piece. And I'm deeply grateful for that and for our friendship, which goes back some, some 15 years or so. Um, yeah, but anyway, yeah. So that that was that was part of its genesis. I, I should uh, let readers know that. Um, um, uh, thank you, Eric, for for thanking me. Um, but I, I, it wasn't entirely altruistic because um, my expertise is the recent history, and you went back much further than uh, I ever did in my own research, and I wanted to learn it. So I read, I read your book for my own, uh, to fill in gaps in my own knowledge. And along the way, I found places <laughs> to make uh, suggestions. And I'm sure other people who have expertise I don't uh, also made suggestions. And, and I appreciate that process because um, I do the same in my own books. You know, when I, you know, if I write something of historical nature, I show it to experts and hope and get good feedback. Sometimes yeah, I, sometimes I get complaints. What? If you're lucky enough to get a response, you're very great. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to ask the right people and um, uh, sometimes you get asked to make changes you're not willing to make and, you know, things yeah. like that happen. Um yeah. But in any event, um, when uh, you did it, you did it in a very thorough way. So one of the questions I have about this is, you know, people, some people like me are very interested in history and how things develop. What, what do you think for um, a yoga practitioner or a yoga teacher even, especially in modern, what's come to be called postural yoga, uh, the yoga studio world, why is there value in them reading a history such as yours or, or my American Veda for that, for that matter? What's the value? How, yeah. As you yeah, I mean, I think just like, knowing where we've come from, knowing your own family, knowing your the achievements of your siblings or your parents or grandparents helps ground your identity in the world and makes you more effective in the world. That's also true within a larger tradition, especially if you're invested in it. 
And not every yoga teacher is deeply invested, right? I mean, we know that. But if you're a fanatic like I was, where I just wanted to learn everything and know everything and really embody this practice in the modern day and embody it faithfully, um, history is actually where I would start. You can start in philosophy um, too, as far as scholarly study goes. I mean, you can have a guru and study with a guru and get a deep kind of personal download. There's many paths that are vital, I think, in, in gaining that kind of a gestalt to your personality. Um, but in a purely practical way, also, you know, there's there's that common state that we that we stand on the shoulders of giants. If you are going to innovate in this practice, and I and I'm a deep believer in innovation um, and creativity, and that's one thing that Americans particularly bring to yoga. Um, you do that most effectively, and you do that most helpfully. If you know how people have experimented with it before, if you have some knowledge of those experiments and how they work, um, how they land, how effective they were or not effective, um, and the kind of cloud of conversation that goes beyond this mere moment. I mean, there's a conversation in the yoga world which is raging right now, and it's good to be up on that. I'm no longer up on that. <laughs> I was for many, many years. But it's good to be aware of the conversation that was raging for the last, you know, several thousand years, um, definitely since, you know, the 10th century when Hatha Yoga emerged and started to have its conversations about how this practice works with the physical body. So that would be my response to asking why we read history. Um, I also read it just because I love it. Um, yeah. It just, they're stories, they're narratives, and it's great to see something that you value play out over the years. Well, I, I always feel that knowing uh, history is terribly important uh, for reasons you mentioned. And in, in when I'm asked to speak to uh, groups to fill them in on the aspect of history I know, I always feel uh, it's it's something of a, a, a duty, you know, mm -hmm. that I have a responsibility to, especially uh, in the yoga world. And I love especially talking to yoga teachers, some, many of whom don't know the giants whose shoulders they stand on and think their lineage began with whoever trained them. And, and I think it makes uh, people more responsible and uh, more uh, less likely to uh, uh, dilute or distort mm. the, the, the teachings if they understand the history, which was one of the reasons I wanted you on, on the show. And I think there's value in it, even for people who don't practice yoga or just pursuing a spiritual path of whatever kind, because so much of contemporary spirituality has been informed by this tradition, whether people know it or not. Yeah, so, I, I like that. D dilute or distort. That we That's something we want to avert. It happens, I think, out of ignorance, right? It happens out of a superfluity of creative energy <laughs> paired with a, a low level of knowledge. And that, I don't like to be pessimistic, but uh, that feels like that's triumphed in the current yoga world. I think there was some question 20 years ago about whether or not the practice would be more diluted and distorted or whether it would be more enriched. And I'm sad to report that I feel like it's gone south. It may be from my narrow picture of the tradition that I'm saying that. Uh, but yeah, that's my impression. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, you anticipated what was going to be one of my closing questions. So let's come back to it because it's important. Let's talk about the future, but let's stick for a minute on on, on the history you project. Um, <clears throat> I know, uh, and this is not my area of expertise, but the, the very early history of yoga uh, 
like anything else that the further back you go, the less uh, clear things are, the less documentation and, and all that. So I know there's often debate over you know, the origins of the yoga tradition. Um, you begin, well, why don't you tell us where you began your timeline and why you chose that? Okay. Um, I'm just going to steer a little bit to the left to answer that question in another okay. way first. And uh, I'm very, this way of answering that question is very exciting to me. So if we label Hatha Yoga, the yoga of the body, this yoga that we ostensibly are practicing in the modern day, um, and we tie it to what's called Kundalini Vidya, fancy word, Kundalini vision, Kundalini knowledge, the way that the body has, um, as Stuart Savatsky has described it, a second puberty that changes our composition uh, psychobiologically. Um, just like it does in, in the puberty that we're all familiar with. And that is a spiritual transformation that is evoked through Hatha Yoga processes. And that's where Hatha Yoga aimed its work um, after about the 10th century. If that is true, if Kundalini process is a reality, and I know it's a reality from my own experiences and the experiences of others, then Hatha Yoga is timeless. That is, that those manifestations of posture and breath practice and ululation sounds that come out of the void, out of the out of the body when that change is happening, um, makes it part of our actual biology. Therefore, it's timeless, or as as old as the human race, <laughs> or maybe some kind of energy that's encoded in biology itself. Um, to some degree, that's what Hatha Yoga is. It is a back engineering of those processes to evoke that deeper transformation that we call Kundalini awakening. That said, um, there is a traceable uh, breadcrumb set of um, evidences from the Indian tradition through which the Hatha Yoga that we know was deeply developed and featureized. Um, and we find that uh, somewhat in archaeology and somewhat in text, the oldest archaeological evidence given in the first pages of my book are from about 3,300 years back, the Sarasvati seals, uh, Indus Sarasvati seals that are called the Pashupati seals um, that have uh, a, arguably a picture of a yogi on them. And then also these little terracotta figurines of figures in basic yoga poses. So everything else that we see from that culture is aligned with later Hinduism. I shouldn't say everything, but many things. There are, There is iconography, images from that culture that seem to suggest the identities of, of gods that we have in Hinduism today, um, as well as that indicate certain ritual practices that are present in this day. And there's something very durable about the Hindu tradition. There's, there is ritual forms and ideational forms, mythological forms that change very little over time. So it's, um, it's easy to say that the yoga that we know in a later period was likely being practiced in an earlier period. Um, when the Vedas are produced around 1200 years before the birth of Christ, we also get yoga-like practices described. They are not designated as yoga um, that are used for ritual preparation, breathing practices, isolation practices, fasting practices, even sitting in certain postures. And then with the emergence of the second urbanization um, along the Ganges River and around the middle of the first millennium, 500 BCE, approximately, we get we get yoga proper. We get the Upanishads, we get Buddhism, we get uh, uh, Mahavira and other teachers who are giving us methods of approach that are not called Hatha Yoga, not the physical yoga, but they are called yoga, and they are more meditationally directed. Um, at that same point in history, we also have types of practices which are um, uh, ways of kind of testing the body, sitting around fires, um, shaping the body in certain ways, which are not at that point tied to yoga, but will get integrated into yoga in later centuries. So the pieces are there and they gradually evolve and are systematized as history goes forward. So you have hundreds of years of history in your timeline 
prior to the appearance of what came to be known as Hatha yoga, the postural yoga. Um, and, but the emphasis because of your orientation, as I see it, is, is on postural yoga. Nevertheless, um, there's the Upanishads, there's the Bhagavad Gita, which discuss yoga in quite some detail, uh, but not the, 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 what we think of as the, the asana break, uh, asana oriented practices that have come to define yoga. Um, are not yet present, or if they're present, they're not emphasized in in these texts. Um, so, how do the early manifestations of yoga, where, where meditation is is um, and philosophical precepts are emphasized, um, how does that play in to the origins of Hatha yoga, and please, for our audience who may not be familiar with the term, define Hatha yoga for us. Okay, so Hatha means hard or fierce or difficult, um, and it's appended to the word yoga to be an indicator of physical practices, which are difficult, which are deeply transformative, which take a lot of endurance, which may create pain in the body. Um, and that term becomes popularized around the 11th century it you know it appears and does not appear in certain texts that describe these practices um and of course the feeder stream for that is again i'm using this term broadly raja yoga the yoga of meditation uh a style a, a term that is actually much more contested now than it was 10 years ago uh, because of certain research that's been done but roughly speaking the yoga of meditation um as manifested in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, as man manifest in, in the Upanishads, the various Upanishads, the Mukya Upanishads, the Ki Upanishads, the 12 group of 12 books that we usually refer to when we talk about the Upanishads, um, are pointing to states of mind and actually energetic states of the body, which are being manipulated through, sometimes through breath practice, definitely through breath practice, um, and through a few vague descriptions of physical postures, um, but mainly through styles of meditative practice. And so it is a continuous tradition that develops its bodily attack, its bodily arm, its arm of bodily practices more fully and more pointedly in later centuries. But that term carries through and the overall approach of raising your consciousness, whatever that means, not in a political context necessarily, um, and actually through a physical process of Kundalini awakening, um, is the goal for the earlier form of yoga, which does not in all cases, though in some cases it does, bring in physical practices in an elaborate way and in later practices after the 10th century where it does. Um. It's, it comes as a surprise to many people um, when they discover that uh, yoga is present in all the Indic traditions, not what just what we think of as Hinduism or the uh, offshoots of Hinduism that uh, we're familiar with in the West, like Vedanta. Um, but there's... Yoga shows up in Buddhism, in Jainism, Sikhism, all the Indic traditions. Uh, could you say something about that? And and uh, and related to that, the spread of yoga. We're all familiar with yoga coming to the West, but it spread its way throughout Asia as well. It's one of the things I learned uh, reading your book was how how uh, more about that. Um, diffusion to other parts of Asia. Talk, tell us about that. Yeah, so the great thing about India is India is just this treasure trove of techniques. It's a treasure trove of insights and ideas around the transcendental experience. And I'm, I'm fond of saying this, I've said it in other interviews, just like the West has 
shown such great achievement in the world of what the Greeks called techne, in the world of, of science and technology, and our mental capacities are steered towards that achievement. It's made us, you know, through the colonial period, masters of the world, but now in a way that we've created a modern culture that we're all sharing, um, that is involved with the same focus on techne, the same focus on technology and science. Um, in the crucible of India, that was not the case. They weren't tinkerers, they weren't inventors, they weren't people who were seeking to control the manifest world. They were people who were interested in approaching the the realm of um, of the all in all, we might say. They they were interested in the higher possibilities of the mind, the, the consciousness that we share through our localized consciousness. That base understanding, um, because it is there, because I'm aware that I am just one consciousness trapped in a body that shares a consciousness with every human being, with every plant, with every stone, with everything that's ever existed, isolated in time and space here and now, presents the opportunity again, to use to back engineer that, to explore that blissful, and that's part of the approach, that blissful experience of transcendental connection to undifferentiated consciousness. Completely open experience in which my own small egoic self can be witnessed as a thing apart, rather than me being trapped by it. So once you are moving into life with that worldview, you are open or interested in the approaches to getting there. And yoga is that approach in its various religious cultures, in its various times and places. So yoga informs that understanding because once in that state of insight, you see the nature of those multiple realities and are able to speak about them, write about them, articulate them for your students, if you are a teacher, um, but also you're you're exploring those opportunities, those platforms, those launching off points to understand that better and actually experience and to transform the self. Um, so that you know the self help tradition in the West is a very clear articulate thing that you know comes in around the 1830s or even earlier with Benjamin Franklin, but it's more largely steered towards imminent experience, towards horizontal experience. The self-help, so to speak, self-help, if we can use that term, tradition in the East is focused on vertical experience, the ultimate transformation. What happens outside of life? What happens beyond the state of death, beyond the state of birth? And the spread throughout Asia. You talk about how yoga shows up in China and Korea and other parts of Asia in ways I was not aware of. How, how long, far back does that go and how far reaching is it? Well, it, it goes back as far as, you know, the the, perme the permeation of Buddhism into India and China, because Buddhism is a yogic form, a meditative form. And uh, that, what can we date that back to? We can date that back to, huh, maybe I don't know that date. <laughs> doesn't matter a so, long time ago yeah a long time ago and into southeast asia as well and then into indonesia um Hinduism, hinduism also penetrated into indonesia um uh and then in the modern day of course modern hatha yoga because it's adopted by the west because the west has been so often a cultural leader um has also been adopted very very powerfully throughout southeast asia and china and and, and japan because it is speaking a similar language. It's a language that's that's recognizable by those cultures, perhaps more readily than our own culture. And it has already an established conversation through the remnants of Buddhism in a place like China or uh, in places like Indonesia. Um, and uh, so the culture is prepared to receive it also because India is close by and better known. Um, so in the modern day, Hatha yoga has deeply penetrated those cultures. It's quite exciting to see. We think about our own little American world of yoga, but there's a vast, vast, massive world of yoga and yoga studios and yoga conferences and yoga festivals going on outside of the United States and Asia. You know, you, you met. <laughs> it's, it's before, uh, one of the things I did before our interview was I decided to open your book at random 
and find something on any, a random page that was uh, uh, unexpected and ask you about it. So what did I open it on? Your mention of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and, you, and you just mentioned it, uh, the publication of Poor Richard's Almanac in, in the se 1758. Um, and you attribute that to the sort of origins of the self-help orientation in American life, self-improvement, yeah. and say, you know, that uh, yoga would one day be uh, deeply affected by that. Yeah. And uh, I, many of our listeners would understand that, but say more, because one of the things I discover in doing my history is that the, the teachers who came here from India, whether they were yoga masters like Iyengar and others, or they were uh, meditation-oriented yogis, um, they quickly realized Americans have this self self-improvement ethos and began to um, address or present their teachings in that context yeah. to appeal to Americans. Is, is, is that why you included this? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, that's probably the biggest reason why I include it. The second biggest reason is that it's still a part of it. Um, you know, a culture receives new cultural information in terms of its own idiom, in terms of its own language, right? When the when the conquistadors showed up in the Aztec world riding horses, the Aztecs had no idea that an animal could be ridden, so they saw that as a single being, a half human, half horse. Uh. Right? We we receive things in our own context. And so when with all this, you know accelerated self-help information coming from Vivekananda and the gurus who followed him after 18, um, after 1893, um, we are naturally more concerned with the eminent world. We're much, much more concerned with our jobs, our health, wealth, love, and happiness, rather than with becoming religious figures, despite everything we say about a Christian country. <laughs> so, you know, we translated all of Vivekananda's information into the self-help idiom, and Vivekananda complied. And the gurus that followed him complied because they saw what Americans were hungry for. They wanted to serve Americans. And they also, I think there was some buy-in on their part. They were learning from us and saying, wow, you can you can make this into like the comparison I like to make is to the, the mystery cults of Rome. When you had these secret societies that gave you special powers or insights so that you could go out and be a better soldier, so that you could go out and be a better tradesman, you know, and the, and the Masons are, a res, you know, kind of residue of that in our modern culture, you know. Um, so yoga sort of became that. And this was a time when we had a lot of secret societies. We had the Elks Club. We had the, the Society of the Golden Dawn. We had the Theosophical Society. And so yoga sort of became that thing. It became that secret thing you could do to give you powers in this world. It would give you cities, you know, from the yogic perspective, we would call those cities worldly powers. But of course, it was at its highest form, in its highest form, it was meant to give us spiritual powers, you know, the powers to be more loving, more forgiving, more ethical, more aligned with what was best for us and everyone else. So we're now on the subject of how uh, these teachings of yoga, both the philosophical and uh, aspect of yoga and the methods of yoga get adapted here in the West uh, and to America especially. And back to the possibility, as we said earlier, of dilution and distortion. So now we have a world where, um, as you mentioned in your book, there are adaptations like yoga competitions and um all manner of things that, you know, many people who, especially uh, Indian Indians who, you know, uh, hold the yoga tradition as part of their heritage and, you know, are emotionally involved with it, find very offensive in many cases. Um, and um, that possibility of dilution and distortion is strong. So how do you see the balance uh, I often talk about how difficult it is to discern 
when something is a uh, skillful adaptation to another culture yeah. or is a distortion of the original. Yeah, yeah a, a, an interesting discussion. May I comment on yoga competitions? Yes, please. If, I don't know if it's still a hot topic. It used to be a hot topic. But uh, it's interesting to note that, um, and we see this in the Upanishads, that that competitive aspect in the spiritual setting has always been a part huh. of the Indian tradition. We, we see rival sages getting in intellectual arguments. The king is the adjudicator, and the king decides who wins. And the winning sage gets, you know, 100 camels or 100 cows and, you know, some land and all that stuff. So this, and then they would, they, they would also do these kind of competitions in the Indian context where they would do mental challenges. They still do this to this day where a person would be asked to do like five mental things at once. They would ask to be asked to recite a poem while memorizing something, while doing something with their hands and all that stuff. These little mind trick games that are also a part of the yoga tradition, teaching the mind to be disciplined. Um, we see that in the context. And then the you know, the competitions were started by the Indians. They weren't started by the Americans. Swami Gitananda in the late 60s initiated these. And then it was Bikram Chowdhury, an Indian who was trans, trans, you know, made his way to America, who initiated them in this country, along with his wife, who was a champion of these contests in India. And so they put them together. Um, so that might not be the best example <laughs> of another culture diluting mm, the tradition. Mm, mm. That and 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 then and it raises questions around competition. What is competition? Is competition negative? Is it something that makes the practice more shallow or makes it more deep? Those are questions. Mm. Okay, good. Um, but as far as dilution goes and you know dispersion, or, um, that that has happened painfully so. It's to a painful degree, and it's because the um, the fitness industry has gotten hold of yoga and. Initially, that was a good thing, you know, because the spirituality was coming into the the fitness context and relaxation was coming in and more body awareness was coming in. It was like great to see, you know, very high quality yoga classes and gyms and stuff when I was coming up, you know, starting in the year 2000, 2001. But now, at least in my narrow view, and I, I have to say I'm not up on developments like someone else might be because I've kind of been out of the tradition for six years. But here in my world of Dallas, Texas, it's terrible. I mean, I go to these classes and it, it there's very little yoga in my yoga. Yeah. You know, and I and I and I'm imagining that's kind of epidemic, but I could be wrong. No, I think your concern is shared by many people, including me. But you know, at the same time, there's a a, a large number of uh, people teaching and or uh, organizations teaching in the name of yoga that are. Uh, being very true to the tradition and the, the fullness of the tradition. And there's an awful lot going on in the world of spirituality that is far more yogic without using the term yoga than much of what goes on in the yoga world. So there's yeah. almost like a split between the, the physical practitioners and, and others and uh, yoga it was, being... It was, a, a, it was a time when I struggled with the term. I thought... Is yoga going to come to mean something much more deep like it does now? Or is it going to be overworn and applied to shallow context until actually that will be what it means? It that's right. Something very shallow. And we're about to that point, perhaps. Yeah, uh, that's been a concern of me, of mine and, and many other people that uh, the term yoga will no longer could one day uh, not be applied to the areas of uh, of life where um, it it should where it really applies most, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, it, exactly. and it could be a linguistic thing. I remember 10, 12, 15 years, uh, whatever number of years ago, going to a yoga conference of some sort where this was being discussed, and I advocated that people who wanted to teach purely fitness yoga and physical yoga shouldn't call themselves yoga teachers, but asana teachers or something mm -hmm. like that. But that never happened. I think I remember, <laughs> I think I remember hearing about that discussion. 
Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd be happy if meditation teachers taught in the name of yoga, but they want to distinguish themselves from the physical practice so they don't. It's getting complicated, folks. So this is one of the reasons why being aware of these tradition of these histories is very important. I think it's a, it helps to safeguard uh, the integrity of of the you know of a valuable uh, tradition. But um, we still have some time, Eric. So I want to ask you um, what during all the research you did, if anything, surprised you? What were the most surprising discoveries? <laughs> Riffing off our most recent point, the prevalence of yoga competitions. Oh, really? That was definitely, that's the first thing that pops in my mind when you ask that question. Like, just finding out, finding out that there are these societies where this is going on all throughout Asia. It's a huge part of the yogic culture. You know, these things are happening all the time and people are gearing up for them and forming special clubs to prepare people to do asana. And yeah, that was one of the most surprising things. Um, what else arises to my mind? I, I think that, and this is partly, uh, Philip Dislepi is a scholar who's done a lot of work on early guru practitioners in America. And so following his lead, doing research on early evangels of Hinduism and yoga to the United States around 1900 onward that followed in uh, Vivekananda's footsteps and to just know how many of them were and there were and how many of them just stayed. I mean, I got into an argument with a colleague in my Ananda cult that I'm a part of that follows Paramahansa Yogananda picture. I, I think they might not want to be called a cult. I know <laughs> they are. <laughs> we're, we're all, it's all cults. I use that word very freely. Oh, okay. Circle. In American the academic cult. sense. Of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, and they also, they are a small group and they are kind of extreme. But and I love them, you know, and I'm one of them. But um, uh, they made the statement that Ananda or Paramahansa Yogananda was the the teacher from India who stayed in America the longest. And I was pretty sure that wasn't true. And I contradicted, you know, one of my colleagues in the tradition who I was working on a yoga teacher training with. And we got in a vehement argument. I mean, we got an argument where she was willing to kick me out of the training. <laughs> because she was so sure of this point of orthodoxy that he was the longest teacher. So I went, that provoked me to do research. Those kinds of things always do. And I discovered there were many teachers that matched his in time of endurance in America or very close to it. And one who was here before him and was here after him. And Who's that? that time. Um, one of Vivekananda's successors in his no, lineage? No, no, he was a guy who came on his own uh Vishna Murthy uh he he came to my attention because he published this really unique magazine called Christian Yoga in Seattle oh oh um Vishna Murthy is that his name you'll have to look in your own yeah. book yeah 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 um but yeah interesting figure he he was also strangely he gained fame through uh, his contention with the Asian Exclusion Act because he was about to be kicked uh, out. Ah, yes. Of you know the guy? I've heard the in that context. Yes, yeah, I've yeah. heard his name. Yeah, because he argued, I was, I'm an Aryan. Yeah. I'm not an Asian. I should be able to allow to stay. And he actually won the case. He actually had to adjudicate that three different times. And each time he was able to remain in America. Well, as somebody who wrote a biography of Yogananda and often yeah. has said in presentations, that he was the first of the uh, spiritual teachers to uh, make America his home and headquarters and stay as long as he did. Um, I learned through people like you that I have to qualify that by saying he was the most prominent of the early teachers who came and stayed. Um, so I, I feel safe, safer there. In America, <laughs> but Vivekananda is the most prominent one in India. Oh, no, I meant who came and stayed in America. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, in, in India, there's no question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, as far as these evangels that came, you know, yeah. you see 
who's a Vivekananda everywhere. No, Vivekananda's a national hero in, in India. You go around India and you find a whole lot of institutions with that bear his name. Yeah. They have nothing to do with his lineage. They just like you know, use his name as <laughs> like we name high schools after George Washington. Yeah. It's, um, anyway, Eric, uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks for uh, addressing the controversial parts of the uh, interview that we started with. Thanks for the um, the historical perspective. Once again, everybody, Eric's uh, book is called Sacred Thread, a comprehensive yoga timeline, 2000 events that shaped yoga history. And I'm sure 2000 is a uh, not an exact count. Uh, I did count them at one point. <laughs> um, thanks for being with us, Eric, and thanks everybody for uh, tuning in. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Uh, it's free. Tell your friends about it and um, Email me with your suggestions if you have ideas of people I should know about and interview for the podcast. Of course, check out my own books, not just my guests' books. And uh, subscribe to my mailing list at my website, philipgoldberg.com. Thanks again, Eric. And everybody, we'll see you. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.